0: podcast, Thomas Dietrich, Professor Emeritus from Oregon State University, take us to the depth of AI. So stay tuned. This guy's good. Okay. So welcome everyone to Future of Data podcast. Today we have with us Thomas Dietrich and uh, a brief bio so he is a prof, uh, distinguished professor and emeritus uh, and director of intel systems research at o- oregon state university and um, tom thomas has devoted his career to research in machine learning starting from very first machine learning workshop in 1980 along the way he has been involved in four startup companies aris pharmaceutical music strands smart desktop and currently big ml he has made important contributions to learning uh, with weak labels, uh, ensemble methods, hierarchical reinforcement learning, and robust artificial intelligence. He was uh, founding president of International Machine Learning Society, which runs the International Conference of Machine Learning, and president of the Association for Advanced uh, Advancements of Artificial Intelligence. He has served on numerous government advisory bodies, uh, currently is as a, as a member of the steering committee of the DARPA ISAT group. Dietri earned his bachelor's degree from Oberyn College, his MS in University of Illinois, and PhD from Stanford. He is a fellow of the ACM, uh, AAAI, and AAAS. With that, uh, Thomas, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Beautiful. So I think very few times we got to meet someone who has a very deep inside um, sort of perspective on uh something that is true with data and the future and i think ai is one of the sort of thing that we hear nowadays a lot so why don't we before we're getting into this this juicy stuff walk us through your journey like what brought you here
1: well i guess i started uh in artificial intelligence uh when my primary motivation was really uh, almost philosophical you know how can we learn about the world and in particular Uh, How do we learn about it from our experience and could we program a computer to do the same thing? Uh, But of course, from there, uh, I got very interested in applied research. When I Mm. first started in artificial intelligence, the field was very much focused on toy problems, Mm. uh, puzzles and games and things like this. And uh, uh, I was much more interested in making sure that the research I did would make a real difference uh, and, and that I was working on the right problems. Cause there was such a risk when you're working on a toy that you don't really learn anything important. Um, and I think actually we're possibly seeing that now with, uh, uh, the work on go and chess, mm. uh, that, uh, uh, people have, uh, particularly in Asia, I think have given far too much uh, importance to, to these advances in go, um, that, uh, you know, they are, there are, the techniques are interesting, but they don't really generalize to the noisy real world. Uh, and that was the problem back in the, in the 70s um, and 80s. So then I, I started working on problems uh, in pharmaceuticals first uh, on a sabbatical leave. Um, and then from there I moved into problems in ecology uh, because uh, of course I'm interested in saving the world in general, but, uh, but also Oregon State University is a, a leader in mm-hmm. I- ecological science and also in uh, conservation. Uh, and so I continue working in that area. Uh, I'm part of a, a network of people funded by the National Science Foundation called CompSusNet, mm-hmm. which is about uh, computational um, Of course, I also uh, was involved, as you mentioned, in music strands, which started uh, in the music recommendation space, then moved into sort of generic recommendations and now is in uh, uh, smart finance. So uh, startup companies themselves, of course, go on journeys um and then uh and then i've been involved in a smart desktop which was a an attempt to put uh artificial intelligence into as a sort of uh secretary for the for the desktop knowledge worker uh and that was a spin out from a big darpa uh, program called uh pal the personal assistant that learns um and probably the most famous uh, spin out from that was uh siri which uh uh, you know, a group of people that had worked on the PAL program then, uh, you know, uh, built, built Siri as a, as a follow-on project. Um, and now I'm working on, uh, I'm a chief scientist of Big ML, which is uh, exploring uh, machine learning as a service and trying to make machine learning extremely easy uh, for, for people with no formal training in data science. Uh, so, so we try to make extremely easy to use tools for, for that.
0: Interesting. And, um, in your journey, um, sort of, uh, when you, when when, when, when you saw this, uh, machine learning and AI field mature, I remember like a couple of decades back when you talk about machine learning and AI, it was so error filled that you can't rely any decision on, on your outcomes. So from, from, from your, um, perspective, what has changed that has really energized this space?
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the two big trends are more data and more compute, mm-hmm. right? And uh, uh, but I think also the, you know, uh, when, when the field first began in the 1970s, 1980 period, um, we had this idea that, uh, right, I mean, the, the origins of machine learning really are in the desire to program the computer to do certain things, mm. like, say, computer vision or, uh, you know, pattern recognition type problems um that we as people find very easy but we don't know how we do it mm. so you know I, I always say if i wanted to build an accounting system i can go interview an accountant and they can tell me here are the steps you go through uh for each uh financial process and i can just code those up and it's uh it's quite straightforward but when i ask you well uh you know what are the steps that you go through to recognize this pen
2: mm.
1: and i says well i don't know i just recognize it right <laughs> I don't first look for this and then this. It's not a procedure that I can mm. code up. But of course, uh, we can collect lots of training examples for that. And now that everyone has a, a camera in their phone or a phone in their camera, uh, we have so many images on the net and, and we can outsourcing so we can get those labeled. And so that explosion of image data Coupled with you know the the uh, the advances in in moving machine learning algorithms into gPUs and now specialized uh processors of various kinds um, has really allowed us to to uh, develop machine learning systems that uh, can do amazing things um, uh, so yeah that's that, I think those are the two main drivers
0: interesting and and um help us understand the AI landscape now so from 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 your vantage point. What is AI and and what are some of the segments that that we can sort of um, divide this AI domain as such into? And and if you can walk us through understanding what AI is. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair. Fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job, let's get back to the podcast. Certainly.
1: So, uh, of course, AI is really a a collection of of software methodologies, right? It's not one single thing. What they all have in common is that we're trying to uh, program smart software,
2: Mm. right?
1: Um, And so, uh, at at one extreme, of course, we talk a lot about machine learning, and there we're building smart software by uh, basically imitating people, right? Mm. So, we collect training data, we imitate what people do, um, and in some cases, by uh, aggregating many people the data for many people we can actually do better than the average person right uh, uh, but but there's also uh, 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 the uh, another facet of artificial intelligence which is really automated reasoning um, and uh, and we see this a lot in in uh, automated planning, logistics, uh, theorem proving, things like this so so for example, uh, right, uh, all of the device drivers on, on Microsoft now go through certain formal verification stages. Those are solving automated reasoning problems. And there are people that do theorem proving, uh, you know, and have found, uh, the computer has found proofs for mathematical propositions. Uh, the proofs are so long that people don't really understand them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but that's another uh, instance of artificial intelligence uh, that that is... Uh, very alien to, to human intelligence. Um, and then there's a third area, I would guess, which is sort of uh, knowledge representation, um, the knowledge graphs, uh, these kinds of things, which in which there's a huge amount of handwork. People manually build these large graphs, uh, and, and more recently, people are trying to use machine learning to help with that. Um, but, uh, but these knowledge graphs are used, for instance, by Google, Mm -hmm. uh to to know what kind of an object when you make a query is this a person is this a company is this a place uh and and then they can uh, choose an appropriate uh answer to give to you based on based on that so i would say those are the three main strands is building things from data Mm -hmm. building things by hand and then uh the automated reasoning uh, a very tight uh, connection to optimization algorithms, which really got their start in the f- operations research field, hmm. right? But we find that very often um, uh, a good way to to program a computer to do something is to say, well, here is the uh, here is the uh, goal that we want you to achieve, and here are the uh, sort of component pieces that you could use to do that: the actions you could take, the subcomponents you could uh, use in a circuit find a combination of these that achieves the goal. Um, and this is somewhat what uh, reinforcement learning is uh, in which you're taking sequences of actions, but it's also what happens in design and planning and logistics. Um, and we, we like to say that we're moving across along the what to how spectrum, right? Hmm. So uh, the, the how means I have to program each individual step and tell the computer how to do something. The what means I just have to say, here's what I want the computer to do, and it has to figure it out for itself how to do it. And we're finding that 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 what approach uh, has, uh, I mean, the advantage is that you can specify what you want at a very high level of abstraction.
2: Mm. The
1: disadvantage is that um, the computer will optimize exactly what you tell it to optimize, and if you tell it the wrong thing, then you'll get uh, the wrong answer. So it's quite challenging to debug errors in that high-level specification. Whereas when you're giving step by step instructions, the computer will follow those instructions, so there are fewer risks there. Uh,
0: yeah, interesting. And um, I remember that um, you were writing about um, you've written somewhere that uh, uh, what's most important in machine learning languages, sort of um, the methods by which the data was collected and labeled. Why do you right. think that? And 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 if you can give us some examples on that. Well, I
1: think uh, uh, the. You know the the usual assumption in the machine learning theory is that uh, we have some performance task. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe um, uh, you know one one example might be uh, that we're we're trying to predict where certain species of birds, where mm-hmm. where are certain endangered species of birds found, um, and uh, and we would and we are uh, we want our training data to to have been sampled. Uh, spatially and in in time and space so that we get a representative sample of possible locations, and then we can measure that. What happens in, uh, I've been involved in this project called eBird, which is a big citizen science project where bird watchers, you know, they're very enthusiastic. They go out and they they collect uh, checklists of the birds that they see. Um, But they tend to collect those checklists close to where they live or along highways For instance uh or in campgrounds and so uh you know if you look naively at the data you would think that endangered species really prefer to fly along freeways right Uh, because that has been collected so that you know that's an example of sample selection bias. but we see it also uh in um you know you're you're trying to build the system to do medical diagnosis um but but uh you take all of your data from uh uh, say uh, you know a a hospital uh, like Stanford University Hospital or Harvard Brigham and Young a hospital that where many of the customers are very rich, um, and you will get a skewed uh, distribution of the of of the symptoms and I mean things like just how, how what's the weight uh, and age mm-hmm. of the group is is very different. Um, and if you try to take a rule that you learned in in one of those hospitals and apply it, say in rural Guatemala it's going to be a total failure because you don't have a, re- a sample of the data that's representative. Um, so that's another example. And then this comes up in, in issues of fairness uh, in the criminal justice system, for example, right? that This has been in the news quite a bit. Um, we might want to have a computer system that makes recommendations to judges about whether a person should be allowed out on bail or be jailed. And, uh, and if you use uh, past data, Um, you have a selection bias because you've only selected people that that were previously in contact with the criminal justice system. And there's a lot of evidence that the criminal justice system is uh, biased toward the poor and and, uh, uh, racial minorities. So so you just, uh, because the computer is learning by imitating what people do, it just copies what people do in that case, which is maybe not the outcome we want.
0: Interesting. So um, I think one thing that, that I, we hear a lot uh, from, from sort of our interaction with a lot of businesses is uh, so this this idea of selection bias, right? So I think one thing that um, I tell, I was talking to someone that our best advantage uh, is that we get bored easily, right? So that the very fact that if I, if I look at a data and I say, hey, it's just, I don't want to look. at, So that, that makes us intuitively sort of cleverly make use of best use of our time that means our intuition is kicking every now and then to help us sort of uh, help us understand those things. But when you when you talk to data, anything you can you can throw, uh, at, say AI, it just ingest. And the very aspect of it can never get bored, gives us sort of leverage. And hey, let's just exploit the it. But then, as you're rightly pointing out, the, the selection bias keeps, uh, creeps in because obviously the data, the more data it ingests and 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 sort of how the data was collected what's the what's what's the rationale behind the data and all that so what is the resolve like i think on on the one side the economics is amazing right with with using machine and ai right i don't have like no food required no oxygen to breathe this just the system is running on its own no sleep required and on the other side uh, this this sort of this world of uh, c- creative intuitive folks who get bored easily lazy lethargic and all that fun stuff happening so, what's what's your take, take on that?
1: Well, um, I, I I guess I'm not exactly sure what the question is. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, clearly, uh, yeah, automating uh, sort of intellectual assembly line work, mm. uh, I think is very important uh, and 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 helps. So, uh, you know, I'm familiar a bit with the the work that's been done on. Uh, trying to build computer vision assistance for, for people who, who look at pap smear uh, mm. slides,
2: right? Mm.
1: And every day those people are given the, the uh, you know, glass slide with uh, the cells uh, on it and they look through a microscope and try to judge which cells might be uh, cancerous or precancerous, right? And this is a, a very difficult task and, uh, and they, they save all of those slides and they retest them. Uh, as a way of getting an independent estimate of what the false negative rate is. So what fraction of the time do people miss uh, a precancer cell? And the false negative rates, uh, at least uh, the last time I looked at this, which is about 10 years ago, mm. the false negative rates were shockingly high.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: like they might be in the 20% range. Uh, and and this is one of the reasons that people are asked to uh, have pap smears regu- uh, frequently mm. because in any one test, they, they may miss the human analyst may miss the problem. So, um, uh, computer vision techniques were developed uh, back in the 90s um, to, uh, to basically rank, look at all the cells on a, on a slide and rank them by how suspicious they look and just uh, call the attention of the human analyst to the, to the top-ranked ones,
2: hmm. right?
1: And, and just by filtering out all the ones that, were, that you could safely ignore, you could make much better use of the human attention Mm. And and get that false negative rate down to like 1% or something. So you can make huge differences by providing a tool that really helps the the uh, visual inspection type tasks to focus the human attention, not on the boring normal cases, but on the interesting uh, Mm. cases. Uh, uh, People have done similar things. Um, uh, I was involved in a project at at NASA JPL, uh, right, where. when whenever NASA puts up a new instrument, uh, say like the Hubble Space Telescope or or something like this, um, they 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 have lots of anomalies mm-hmm. that are seen, right? And the uh, the early anomalies are typically um, various kinds of faults and noise, surprising faults and noise, like uh, paint chips turned out to be a problem in the space telescope. Um, and uh, but once they figure out those, then they're interested in the interesting data points. You know what? Uh, the, the, the telescope might be looking at, at million points, but the scientists want to see, well, what are the interesting ones? Mm. Um, and so uh, uh, working with uh, my, my colleague, uh, Kiri Wagstaff, uh, she developed a system that, that would really would show people just what appeared to be the most interesting things. Um, by It really modeled all the boring stuff, and then it would say, what is the most un- uninteresting thing? The most unboring thing should be the thing I show to, uh, to the analyst.
0: Interesting. So I think, so you gave two fascinating examples, right? So one example was very sort of, okay, healthcare, cancer detection, it, like so very monotonous jo- job, human error is very possible because again, it's a monotonous job. And on the other mm. side is predicting criminal, uh, like so predicting which side of, of criminals would be or, or figuring out the criminal justice system. Uh, who to uh, because there there are a lot of pending cases that probably AI could 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 put uh, uh, help yeah. with. So,
1: so, so an AI system would certainly be more reliable in the sense of being uh, reproducible. Right. right, right. It will always do the same. It will treat all all cases the same way. Now it may be biased in the way it does that. Right. But it would. But there's there's presumably a lot of variability of, across human judges that would be removed by using the AI system.
0: We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by first Friday fair fastest AI powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website first and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Right? So, so when you wear, um, your researcher hat and, and you look at these problems, right? And some to, to, from the business end, all they look for many times is 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 the financial implication, right? So they'll save a lot of money and they can get a lot more done pretty at a very reasonable pricing. How? What would you What would you um, recommend to those guys? Like, how would I not put myself into where I'm predicting the the criminals using AI vis a vis of uh, looking at Pap smear and figuring out if there's a sort of some some concern or some health concern? Like, how do you how do you evaluate if some criteria is ripe for AI? or something is sort of that there's still a very high error rate and something. Um, how how would you evaluate those scenarios?
1: Well, let's see, I mean, usual rules of thumb are one, uh, that people can do the task, uh, mm. right? Um, because if if people can't do the task, then, then we worry that it, it, we may not, the, the data may not contain information sufficient for the task. Mm. And you can still try to use a, uh, AI techniques to see if there's a signal there that people just don't observe, um, and uh, and that that's kind of the the story behind uh, the whole data mining movement as well. Maybe there are patterns that that uh, aren't aren't apparent to people, uh, but but the computer could find. But that's definitely a higher risk than going after a problem where we know people can do the task. The information is there in the signal, um, and then then the challenge then then questions are well how stable is that signal? Right. Mm. Um, I mean, if you, if you consider some, something like decide what stocks to invest in, you have a very noisy signal, right. That's constantly mm. changing. Or if we think about, um, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, military applications also, right. There's that, that saying that, uh, that no plan survives first contact with the enemy. It's a very fluid and constantly changing space mm. or politics or things like this. But if it's something where the underlying process is really very stable, so we think about these uh, cancer cases or, or uh, recognizing handwritten letters, people are not changing how they write their letters very quickly, mm. um, so we can expect that, that something we learn with machine learning will still be useful for a while uh, because the, the real um, you know, uh, enemy of machine learning is rapid change. So if I learn something that based on data from yesterday and yet the phenomena has changed today, then, uh, then my predictions will be wrong. Um, and, uh, and, you know, so the more slowly things change, the better, because then we can retrain the system, uh, every day, every week, every month and sort of track the phenomenon. Um, and ideally if it's not changing at all, then we just train it once and we can deploy it. Uh, So people's faces you know, uh, in terms of a face detector, like is in all of our cameras now, uh, people's faces aren't, aren't changing, at, well, maybe at evolutionary time scales. Uh, so that's a wonderful, stable phenomenon. My individual face for, uh, I might uh, shave my beard or change my glasses or shave my hair or something, then that's uh, more challenging, right?
0: Interesting. And um, um, that's fascinating. So walk us through your current research that you're working on, like what, what are what, what are you working on nowadays? Well, I'm very interested
1: in uh, questions of making AI more robust. You know, I, I've watched, well, especially machine learning. I've mm-hmm. watched machine learning, right, start with these complete toy problems where it was totally fragile. And then we've moved on to um, a phase, which I'd say uh, up to the present, where most of the research is just focusing on performance metrics like accuracy, mm-hmm. area under the ROC curve, precision at k various metrics like this uh, lift and so on um, and uh, and really not looking at the larger uh, context the software engineering context and the application context of our AI system so uh, we we basically um, need to come to grips with the fact that people are actually using our technology uh, which we you know mm. for, for decades in, in in the academic world we've had the luxury of just uh studying the problems very uh, abstractly and not really confronting the fact that well these systems need to be debuggable and maintainable reliable right uh and also all of those sort of illities uh, maintainability and reliability and so on are things that have not been studied very much so for example um i think every machine learning system should have a model of its own uh region of competence that is it it mm. should be able to say given this new query, um, I'm, I uh, refuse to, to, to make a prediction because this is outside the, the range of the data that I've seen before. Um, so this is sometimes known as a classification with a reject mm-hmm. option.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, uh, and it's been an area that's been studied quite a lot. But, uh, but in the era of deep networks, um, we need to revisit this question because a lot of our techniques, um, uh, it's not clear how they can extend to the deep nets case. Uh, so, for example, you'd like to get well-calibrated probabilities out of your system, so that if you say, "I think that uh, that I don't know that this is a cancer cell uh, with probability 0.8," mm. then 80% of the time you say that it should be true, right? Mm. That would be a well-calibrated mm. probability. If you have well-calibrated probabilities, then you can set a cost threshold that, uh, on, you know, the 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 probability of error, and you can make a a, a a reject decision. The other, the other uh, uh, problem that I'm interested in is is the open category problem. So, mm-hmm. um, there, very often there there could be some new kind of disease in in our cells that we haven't seen before. Um, but the way we train our machine learning systems is we uh, assume the world is a closed world and there's mm-hmm. only you know ten possible digits in 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 our writing, which is quite a good assumption. Mm-hmm. But but, uh, but in ImageNet. Right, There are only 1,000 categories of objects, whereas we think there are probably you know, hundreds of thousands of categories of objects. Mm. I had a project uh, uh, recognizing insects, trying to determine the species of insects from, from images. And, uh, and we were focusing on a set of 54 categories of insects because those are used by the Environmental Protection Agency to um, assess the health of streams, freshwater mm. streams. Right. If the stream is polluted, then many of the insects will be missing or or the distributions will be very different. Uh, So my collaborators went out and they collected uh, 100 specimens from each of these 54 categories. We got beautiful pictures of them. We trained a computer vision system. It was getting 92 percent correct. But then uh, we had forgotten to think about the fact that real uh, 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 samples drawn from Mm -hmm. real streams would have other stuff in them not just our 54 species, but there are you know 1,200 species of insects or something that live in the streams. Some of them are very rare.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and also there'll be false alarms like pebbles and sticks and leaves and things like this. Um, and so when we uh, took that into consideration, our equal error rates were, were something like 20 or 30%. So the system went from being usable to being unusable once we had to confront these novel. Object. This is another area where uh, I think we can use anomaly detection methods to say, does this input query look strange compared to the data we trained on? If it does, then maybe it belongs to a new category outside of the, the ones that we were trained on, and we should reject it because it's novel. Um, because it, We might be quite confident about it because it's far away from any of our decision boundaries, mm-hmm. but it's also very far away from all of our training data, so we should really take care of it.
0: Interesting. And um, I was reading um, in your profile, you are also you have, you have also worked on reinforcement, uh, reinforced learning. So what is reinforcement learning, if you can walk us through that? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website, firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast.
1: Okay so um uh reinforcement learning really combines two two things one is uh sequential decision making so mm. uh let's take an example like playing a, uh, atari games or playing the game of go or something like this right um in the game of go uh you you have to choose a sequence of actions to mm. eventually win the game mm. um and uh and and so that's that, that that's uh, in a in a perfectly closed world like go, there's a, a we could formulate it by just saying, "Well, here are the rules of the game, and here are the actions you can take and just solve it tr- try to solve it using search. Um, but in the real world, uh, uh, we usually don't know the rules of the game exactly. Mm. So um I guess you know uh, there's a lot of work uh, coming out of, say, Peter Abiel's group at Berkeley mm. where they're trying to train uh, robots to gra- to to grasp and pick up things, right? you pick up, learn how to pick up a mouse, learn how to pick up a pen, uh, you know, uh, all of these things. And, uh, um, and in that case, uh, you want the robot to choose a series of control actions of, of all of its joints in order to succeed at, at, at some goal. Um, and so, uh, so, so the, you can have, you can either um, uh, demonstrate how to do that, which is known as imitation learning, or you can have the system try to learn by trial and error. It just tries random things uh, and, and, and until it succeeds. And once it has a successful case, then it tries to improve it. Um, and so that's one thing. The other thing about reinforcement learning is that uh, it is you only learn from uh, uh, what, what we call bandit feedback, or uh, mm. you know, success or failure. So um, you know, uh, if it was a supervised learning task. Um, uh, I I would say, well, the first action you should take is, I don't know, open your, your gripper. Mm. Okay. And it would learn to open the gripper and, and I would give it positive examples of opening the gripper and negative examples of opening Mm. the gripper. And I could teach it the first step. Then I could say, now you need to move the arm forward. And, and again, it could learn just to do each of those steps and so on. And so you would teach it at each step. What is the right action? But in reinforcement, usually too painful, too expensive. To have people mm. provide that kind of instruction, so instead we just say, "Well, I'm going to give you a reward when you achieve the goal. Mm.
2: I'll
1: give you a reward of, you know, hundred points when you successfully pick up the pen, um, and otherwise I I, I give you um, maybe a a small cost penalty for each action you take
2: because
1: mm. I want you to learn to pick up the pen quickly. Um, and so uh, so so that becomes the reward function, and and then we ask the Learning algorithm to, to to try to find a, uh, a a control sequence of controls that will uh, achieve that goal, uh, a, a maximize that reward. Uh, so this is an example of what I was talking about earlier, where we we are telling the system the what that we want mm-hmm. it to do. We we just say, well, the success is that you're holding the pen in your gripper,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: but we don't tell you the how, and it's up to the computer to to f- figure out the how. And so uh, I've looked at some applications uh, um, in, uh, in, in scheduling and logistics
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, uh, where again, we can give the system a reward for a good uh, schedule that is short and achieves all of the schedules, everything within the allowed time and minimizing resources. Um, and I've looked at problems in, uh, say, invasive species management or wildfire management where you want to try to achieve some goal like killing off an invasive species um, and uh, and there's a cost to each uh, action that you do uh, and so you want to minimize the costs or or achieve the cost uh, in the shortest amount of time w- subject to some budget constraint so these kinds of things
0: interesting and and um, you have also said you you have you're working on. Um, anomaly detection uh, nowadays as well. I think what's what's going on in that space? If you can, if you can walk us through that.
1: Well, so anomaly detection is interesting because I think it uh it's been relatively poorly studied. I mean, if we compare mm. it to supervised learning, classification, regression, uh, object recognition, speech recognition, all these things have uh, you know thousands or, or tens of thousands of researcher years uh, invested in them. But anomaly detection is relatively uh, poorly studied. There is a there has been an active community especially Mm. more in on the industry side. Um, uh, And so I'm trying to to get more academics interested in in developing the underlying theory. But uh, people are interested in in anomaly detection for a whole host of reasons. One would be um, uh, often you build a control system like for instance, one application of reinforcement learning is to managing data centers, right? Mm. Want to decide when you can power down a system or put it on standby because you don't need it, uh, Mm. and you want to save energy. You may be managing the air conditioning uh, systems of the building. Maybe you're doing managing the network infrastructure, and all of these uh, these actions. But but uh, but you also want to have some sort of an anomaly detection system that is saying is something strange going on. Uh, Has there been a spike in network traffic? Is there unusually warm temperatures uh, in some part of the room? Um, that might indicate uh, broken equipment, mm. uh, might indicate an intrusion or cyber attack, uh, you know. So, or it just could indicate a change in the in the mix of uh, the jobs that we're being asked to do that maybe should require some management response. So um, we've looked at uh, at the uh, we had funding to to look at um, uh, sensor networks. So particularly weather, weather station networks, right? You, you have these weather sensors um, and they, they get dirty over time or they may break uh, because they're exposed to extreme weather. Um, you know, I joke that if we would just keep these weather stations indoors, they wouldn't break. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but, um, but, but so I like to say the internet of things is gonna be the internet of broken things mm. um, because you have all these sensors um, and uh, often they're cheap. And so they tend to break, and they're often in uh, challenging environments. So how can we detect those broken sensors? Well, we can build a a machine learning model of what we expect their readings to be normally, right? So if we're looking at, I don't know, traffic sensors, we can have a model of traffic. If we are uh, looking at weather sensors, we can have models of weather. And we can even use weather forecasts in that. Um, And then uh, when something unusual happens, like a weather sensor st- uh, stops reporting, stops varying and just is reporting a flat line or or it's very spiky noise that shows up as a statistical anomaly that's very unlikely according mm. to our model of of the normal normal uh uh behavior so um there have been some very interesting algorithms uh unfortunately i didn't invent any of them myself mm. but some very interesting algorithms uh that have been developed in the data mining community um that that uh with a relatively small amount of training data, can develop pretty good anomaly detectors, and uh, so so we've been p- paying a lot of attention to fraud and uh, computer security applications, um, because uh, you know I think we we've recently realized that in artificial intelligence, um, computer security is really a uh, complete showstopper for us. Uh, if uh, if cyber attacks, if uh, we you know AI systems provide new attack surfaces. Uh, like dataset poisoning and adversarial queries, um, and unless we can solve the the cybersecurity side of that, our, we really can't use the technology. So, um, so we've been looking at cybersecurity applications, uh, um, and and there we uh, have uh, apply these anomaly detectors to look at uh, events or traffic. When we see an anomaly, then uh, in these systems, typically you have some analyst, like security analyst. And you want to show you them these cases and ask them, uh, you know, is this something, you know, that you should act on? And so you have to show them the case and you have to give them some kind of an explanation. Why do we think it's anomalous? We may be measuring uh, 200 different attributes of each event, but uh, we don't. It's not sufficient to say this one looks weird to us. We want to say this one looks weird because of attributes 12 and 17, and here's a scatter plot that shows it's a real outlier. Uh, so then the analyst can say, yes, that was, that is a problem and I'm going to act on it or no, that's a false alarm. We want to take that analyst feedback back into the system and make the system more um, discerning because the big problem with anomaly detection is false alarms. Uh, no mm-hmm. anomaly detector is perfect, especially if the natural phenomenon itself has, uh, has uh, uh, heavy tails and so there will just naturally be outliers. Um, so, uh, what, we have, what we're finding is that um, by incorporating expert feedback, we can double or triple the number of success of correct true anomalies that we discover for the same amount of uh, analyst uh, uh, efforts in in answering our queries.
0: Interesting. Now, um, I want um, to have some of your perspective on the enterprise adoption of this AI, like how businesses are using this AI in, in, in the, in, from your vantage point. So what are some of the things that you have seen that businesses get it wrong, get, they, they get it wrong about what the capability of AI and what AI could could do to help their business? Like what are some of the things you could share?
1: Well, I think um uh two 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 big mistakes. I think one is uh is that um people uh attack a problem without asking whether really machine learning, like supervised learning, is the right solution. Mm. Uh so uh, you know, it's not enough to say, well, gee, we have all this data. There mm-hmm. must be something we can do with it. Again, you need to do, to identify a task where you think the data really has enough information in it. There's information content that will, that will, that you'll be able to get accurate, uh, predictions out of it. Um, so, uh, so just mere, quantity is not enough. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, as we were saying before, the stability of the, of the phenomenon, uh, needs to be stable so that it can be predicted. Um, otherwise the cost of ownership. Uh, will go up because you 'll be constantly having to make changes to the system to 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 track the the phenomenon. Uh, I guess the other uh, problem is thinking too narrowly so uh, you know um, uh, you can uh, think of uh, say maximizing click through rates uh, in advertising uh, and you can say well I just want to I want to get the guy to click on this ad right now." Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but, but it's important maybe to take a longer-term perspective and look at, say, the lifetime value of that customer mm. or the long-term value of that customer. If they click on something and then they're very disappointed because it really wasn't something they wanted, um, then they feel sort of tricked and disappointed and they're not going to click again in the future.
2: Mm. So
1: that suggests that instead of thinking about it as um, a supervised learning problem of uh, they click or they don't click, mm. and I want to predict that, And then I want to show them the ad they're most likely to click on. That would be the sort of uh, supervised learning formulation. We should really think about it as more of a sequential decision-making or reinforcement learning problem. We want to look at their uh, their value over the next year or or two years or five years or something like that. Um, And uh, we we want to present them with a sequence of experiences that will turn them into a loyal and repeat customer. Mm. And so it's really important to think about what is the, optimization objective that you're giving. I mean, we've now seen, um, uh, you know, with uh, things like YouTube, uh, uh, right? There was a story that came out uh, last year uh, that showed that they were, they had uh, asked the recommendation system of YouTube was tasked with maximizing user engagement. as how long could we keep the user online? Uh, but uh, the and the, what the AI really learned to do then was, to give them more and more extreme videos that were more and more compelling, uh, which was sort of uh, uh, you know I think someone said you 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 start out uh, looking at uh, at car car videos maybe with the idea of buying one and eventually you're looking at at high speed crashes and catastrophes, right? Um, and uh, and we have to ask uh, you know and and it, it, so it's sort of like a built-in radicalizing. Uh, right. mm. are we really optimizing the right objective in these systems and that's so I think stepping back and looking at the big picture uh, is is very important because you know the big weakness of our AI technology is that it is extremely narrow the computer really doesn't understand the broader context at all and it will just optimize the thing we tell it to do and uh, and it will do that well um, But that may not turn out to give us uh, uh, end-to-end return on investment or long-term financial uh, outcomes that we want.
0: Interesting, interesting. Thank you for sharing your perspective on that. So um, one thing I was thinking about when, when you were talking about robust AI system and if I wear my statistician hat. So I think when many of these models were created in the past, we were not dealing with too much data, right? So they were like numbers were not in billions and trillions there was no petabyte of data that we have to deal with. And and obviously the math worked uh, during that time. But now the, because of scale and because of our, as you said, more, more computing and more data, we are, we are now, every number is so skyrocketed high that uh, what's your perspective on the evolution of error bars like now with more data there would bound to be more sort of errors that are, are sort of um, recalibration that you needed from the legacy mathematical models that were created then. So what's the resolve? Uh, what's what's your take on that?
1: Um, well, it's a little difficult to say because, of course, with more data, we become more opportunities. Mm. And so our uh, our desires for what we would like the systems to do also uh, mm. scale. Mm. Um, uh so so uh, and then we may end up with uh the fact that although if we're looking instead of looking at uh you know a population of ten thousand people that come to one store in one city, we now want a model that works over the entire world mm. um or we're doing uh, online e commerce and so again, the whole world is coming to our doors and uh uh and then the 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 heterogeneity of of that population means that we need lots of data for every subgroup within the population. Um, and so we have to check whether we have uh, big data imbalances. Um, so, so the raw numbers about the total number of, of data points we have might not be telling us about these sub areas. And so, uh, 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 tools that people are exploring right now really try to find what are the, what are the sub the segments of our, of our, uh, users that, that are most poorly represented in our data mm-hmm. and how can we get more data for them? So, so, um. Uh, big data problems often turn out to be thousands of tiny data problems.
2: Mm. Um,
1: of course, you hope that there are some things that can be shared across that whole area, and that brings us into the area of meta-learning or transfer learning, or hierarchical Bayesian models, things like this where you do try to get that sharing across the different subgroups. Um, uh, so, Yeah, I guess that's,
2: okay. that's my okay. first answer. Um, so, yeah. In terms
1: of trying to get accurate uh, error bars out, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, we, 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 there, there is quite a lot of progress on this. So, um, unfortunately, right in, in, uh, if we look at something like random forests, mm. um, we can get very nice error bars out of those because those mm. are an ensemble method mm. and, uh, and the, it, it, it's almost a quasi Bayesian procedure. So we can get posterior estimates of quantiles mm. of means and variances, all kinds of things, uh, out of those things. But, um, uh, and, and in principle, one could do the same thing. If you trained 10,000 neural networks for, for a problem, then you would have an ensemble of those. It's just that that's, uh, in, you know, even with our supercomputers, that is a huge amount of, of time and energy to, to spend. So, so that, that's the, challenge. in some sense, the math still works, but it's not feasible at the scale that, that we want to operate. So uh, obviously, people are looking at things like: can we use dropout as a simulation mm-hmm. of an ensemble? Mm-hmm. Are there other these other uh, techniques that are more explicitly Bayesian? Um, can we post-process the data in some way to, uh, say, you know, using uh, um, uh, uh, a model, probabilistic model such as a Gaussian process in the final layer of a neural network, and which would give us maybe some error bars. Uh, there's work on just uh, rescaling the softmax uh, temperature uh, has mm. been shown to give better uh, calibrated probabilities. So it's a it's very active research area right now, I guess. Um, Interesting. The other thing, of course, that's been very disturbing is this discovery of, of adversarial examples mm. in, in computer vision. Mm. So when we have, uh, it seems very high dimensional input, um, that, it's, that uh, all of our data points are really very far apart in, mm. in data space. And uh, so there's a lot of empty space in between. Um, and it also seems that, our, you know, that we, we train our systems discriminatively, that is to, do, to make the discriminative mm-hmm. decision that we want. They seem to learn the minimum statistical information, in some sense, the minimum sufficient statistics to do that task. Um, and that turns out to be very non-robust, right? Mm. Um, and, uh, again, ensembles would probably help. But maybe we need to think about more um, uh, descriptive or generative models rather than discriminative ones. And this is one of the reasons people are so excited about generative adversarial networks, mm. uh, deep density estimators, variational autoencoders, these kinds of generative models, which uh, uh, w- in which the system doesn't like just look for the minimum information necessary to distinguish between a chair and a desk but says, well, here's what chairs generally look like. Here's what desks generally look like. And so one can imagine the systems of the future uh, use our discriminative techniques to come up with hypotheses and then validate those hypotheses by using a generative model to check that there really is something in the image that looks like a chair, not, not just something that had these minimum features for telling a chair apart from a desk.
0: Interesting, interesting. And. Um... What about your, so what's your thought on how AI is impacting the current workforce? So if, if, if we, if we sort of, um, from your vantage point, you are seeing how AI we talked about perhaps mere um, analysis, how much jobs will it displace? Right? So what's, what's your take, take on if I am a, a sort of a listener or viewer watching this podcast, how would I secure my, my future? Like, what would you suggest? as a scientist well scientists yeah, i guess i mean
1: i guess i have uh two 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 or three i mean first of all uh you know um machine learning techniques rarely automate everything in a job
2: right mm. uh
1: so it's more uh like with the pap smear case we can give the the pap smear inspector a better tool so that they can do their job better uh now it's true that we probably would need fewer people then overall um and so so uh but but it but it's not as though we can automate away mm. radiologists and and uh, all those medical professions we still need all those people but mm. maybe we don't need as many of them but we need all of those professions um a second uh thought is uh you know that that uh, uh the technology is creating new jobs as well uh it's very hard to know what those are though uh mm. you know i i i'm personally a terrible forecaster of the future you know back in the Around 1982 to 84, we rolled out the internet, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I was a graduate student at the time when the ARPANET went from the protocols it had been using to, to adopt uh, TCP IP, mm-hmm. the internet protocol suite. Um, and, uh, and everybody congratulated themselves and said, okay, we, computer networking, we've, we've achieved it. Now uh, it's, it'll be easy to move files from one computer to another computer uh, or to do remote logins, uh, and, and the problem is solved. We had no idea that, we, you know, we conceived of computer networks as a way for computers to connect one computer to another computer. We didn't realize that the big impact of the internet was to, to, to connect people to people, business to business. That was that was totally, uh, you know, just inconceivable in, in 1980. And yet, 13 years later, the web browser was developed and, and it had support for images. And my first reaction was, who needs images? in, in mm. When you're using the uh a computer so so I'm terrible at that now, my son is a web page designer okay a job that never existed uh, mm. so um uh you know it's very hard to predict where where things will go. One thing I'm really struck by is uh is how much um i would say uh, you know there are lots of uh, machine learning uh tools that that are that actually don't do their tasks very well. But creative people are turning them into tools. So if if you've seen the Deep Dream um, sort of uh, uh, synthetic images that you can get out of neural networks by running them backwards, and saying you know take this image and transform it to be as cat-like as possible, and you get mm. all kinds of strange things emerging. Um, and people are doing this with music, uh, with in almost every creative endeavor now. Uh, in design, people are are training machine learning systems. To in some sense do a a, a straightforward prediction task, but they 're not using it for that task they kind of run it backwards and use it to ideas and possibilities so um uh, you know i'm i it's it 's turning out to be a, a powerful creative tool for people to use um, and uh, so there's another example of a totally unexpected um, outcome uh, and then I guess the third thing is um uh you know, we, we tend to think about um, AI systems in in terms of their uh, knowledge of the physical world, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of focus nowadays on uh, robotic manipulation. Can I learn to gra- pick up a pen uh, and locomotion and things like this? Um, but I think a, a huge amount of our human knowledge is actually not so much about the physical world as it is about the social and emotional world. So our emotional intelligence and our social intelligence you know, what has really allowed us to be such a successful species is our ability to work together and to form organizations and institutions and things like this. Our computers are social idiots, right? Mm. Um, they, they uh, there is there is a, an area of multi-agent systems research that tries to make them, uh, you know, uh, it's sort of more like distributed computing, making multiple uh, computers work together. But uh, But I suspect that any job that involves social and emotional intelligence is going to be safe from automation for a very long time Um, because a characteristic of those areas also is that they're very context-rich and as I was saying before uh, our AI systems continue to be extremely narrow in in their capabilities so we can build you know the joke used to be that back in the 70s that all of our AI systems were idiot savants Mm. that is brilliant at one thing like playing chess, but they couldn't do anything else. And our new technologies still have that problem. Um, now we, they can play chess much better, but they still only can play chess. The big advance is we can take the same software tool and retrain it to play Go, but it can't play chess and Go at the same time, uh, right? Hmm. So we can have a so-called big switch. We can have hundreds of these different systems and switch among them, but we don't have a kind of general purpose um, intelligence you know what people sometimes call artificial general intelligence mm. we don't have really very many good ideas about how that works uh, or how we could achieve it so um, so so that's a long-winded answer to the idea that, that the human versatility mm. and our ability to have an appreciation of the broader context in which a decision is being made is absolutely critical and it's the reason that we can expect man machine combinations To be the wave of the future because the machine may be able to do the narrow task very well but it's the human that has to bring the broader context because the computer just does not have that broader context.
0: interesting so um i was just thinking about so one of the conversation i had with the philosopher a couple of weeks back and it was it was it went in a very interesting direction and definitely i want your perspective on it so his perspective was that vishal the problem with ai and, and human intelligence is the very definition that very definition of intelligence and and his perspective was what we use when what we are told to be intelligent like i am intelligent because my ability to right so learn a skill and learn to interact around my surrounding and doing certain things now in 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 the construct of ai the the definition is like it's more of a classifier problem. Hey, is it still a cat? Is it still a cat? Like, how is it still a cancer? Uh, how how probable are you that it's 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 a cancer? So his perspective was, what if you change the the very f- aspect of that? Hey, it's not intelligence; it's something else. So humans are not threatened by by this word called AI vis a vis of human intelligence, and sort of they don't feel and they feel as an empowerment um uh, sort of tool. So I, I want your perspective as a practitioner. What's, what, 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 what's your thoughts? Well, uh, certainly many
1: groups have tried to get, to get away from the AI term. Um, (laughs) uh, I mean, we, because, uh, intelligence, uh, you know, uh, Marvin Minsky, uh, used to say the word intelligence is a suitcase word. That is Hmm. you open it up and it's got all kinds of stuff inside. It's not just one thing. Um, so there are many, many different ways to be intelligent, um, you know we've we've talked about sort of uh recognition intelligence that I can recognize objects mm. uh, and that's some sort of uh you know very fast uh neural process uh to which we devote a lot a large part of our brain and then there's um sort of problem solving intelligence that I can come up with a sequence of actions that will achieve a goal um, People actually are not very good at that kind of planning uh to mm. achieve goals right um and uh and 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 we think about like doing algebra or doing mathematical proofs people are really terrible at this Mm -hmm. um but we think the people that can do it are are very smart
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: but the computers can be much smarter than people in Mm -hmm. that area so um uh but that's totally different from from this kind of you know visual recognition intelligence um so where am i going with this um uh certainly, the, our AI systems we're not building right now uh, you know commander data, some sort of freestanding agent like thing um, and in in Hollywood, there really seem to be only two stories: mm-hmm. either it's the Commander data story, which is basically the Pinocchio story. he wants to be a real human and have emotion um, and that's very flattering to us, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's very realistic <laughs> right, right. Uh, and uh, and and um or or it's the terminator story
2: hmm. right
1: and 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 maybe it's really probably more the c3po story right which is our our sidekick assistant that
2: mm-hmm. has
1: some unique characteristics but also is very different uh from from us uh in many ways so um uh so i think that the yeah some people have tried to say well we should be call call it aug- augmenting uh, human intelligence mm-hmm. or human aware intelligence or, uh, uh, you know, uh, centaur systems where it's a man plus machine or man plus, <laughs> uh, uh, I think, I mean, I think all of those are our possibilities. We, we, re- we really want things that help us be more human and help us be more successful and more effective. Right. Uh, uh, and because we are, we, we're building the future for
0: us, not for, mm. uh, for our computers. True. That makes sense. And and um, so, what is your crystal ball prediction for next five years in AI? Like, what do you expect to see, or what do should we expect to see in the next few, five years coming out from the AI camp?
1: Well, I think um, the, I think in the next three to five years, we will we will have good solutions for the for for uh, the self models. So so uh, our machine learning systems should be able to have good models of their own competence and and be able to tell when they're going to make a mistake and when they aren't. Um, uh, there's There continues to be lots of progress on uh, uh, pre-training uh, networks that then can be used with a relatively small amount of data to do new tasks. So we already see this with the computer vision systems uh, that are trained on something like ImageNet, and then they can be very rapidly retrained to recognize insects or uh, or cellular or, you know, cancers or things like this. So, um, so these systems are learning some kind of general representations or useful features of images that are independent of the particular task. There's a very exciting paper that was just came out this week, uh, showing similar things for training, uh, bi language models, mm-hmm. uh, where they could use these uh, pre-trained models then on a wide variety of different tasks and achieve new uh, state of the art results advance the state of the art on several of those tasks so um so that seems to be an area where we're making progress uh, another uh, kind of closely related area uh, that is uh, super important in robotics and in reinforcement learning in general is what we call sim to real transfer mm. so you can reinforcement learning generally is extremely slow and extremely data hungry right like taking millions and millions of trials to develop a good grasping strategy or something, so this is infeasible in the physical world but uh, but in simulation and it's very so uh, but the problem is of course, the simulated world and the real world are not the same, despite all the discussion of having a digital twin of mm. your plant or your car or whatever it 's not a twin mm. it's some sort of a of a of a, uh, a, a poor substitute but um but we're getting better at understanding how we can train in the simulator and then transfer that to the real world with a small amount of additional training in the real world. Um, and, and, uh, I think, you know, the real leader in this is, uh, yeah, Sergey Levine and Peter Abiel, mm-hmm. uh, in the Bay area are, are doing beautiful work on this in robotics, but we're seeing it, uh, in, in several other areas as well. So, so those are the things that give me hope that we can, um, uh, move beyond these massive data massive label data sets and be able to learn quickly with smaller amounts of data and uh and that's also means quickly adapt as the uh phenomena change too so so maybe that'll allow us to tackle problems that are more dynamic uh and less st- static
0: interesting um, beautiful so thank you so much on, on walking us through that so now we're at the, the tail end of the conversation. So. Um, I, I want your perspective, your personal perspective on, uh, and this is what we, we ask all of our guests to share is, if, um, what are some of the traits in your life that has really helped you be what you are today? What would you attribute those um, those qualities or those, those traits to?
1: Um, well, I guess probably number one is that I'm a very curious fellow. Uh, so I think anyone who's working in data science you know, you, you need to be committed to learning, uh, working with a subject matter expert and really learning some of the knowledge of the, about the domain. You can't become a subject matter expert, but maybe you're a professional dilettante. You have to learn the vocabulary, the concepts, uh, the, the, the challenges and threats in, in, in each application, uh, and really to formulate the, the problem properly, right? Is it really a prediction problem? Maybe it's an optimization problem. Maybe it's a sequential decision problem um you know do we are we observing the true state of the system or do we have noisy mm-hmm. observations and we need to estimate the state of the system all these kinds of um decision analysis type questions uh, modeling questions so so i think it's uh you know very important to be uh um curious uh and and to really revel in learning new things um uh, and so that's definitely me um i guess another thing is uh uh it, it, you know it is also good to to um to to be a bit obsessive about methodology and uh and getting things right um any software engineer uh, needs to do this that you know you need reprodu- reproducible processes you need to document what you're doing
2: hmm.
1: um uh, learning how to to improve your own process uh every time you take on a new project um so uh so you need to sweat the details Um, and then I guess the third thing, the big advice I give to, to students is, you know, learn as much mathematics as you can, (laughs) Mm. because, you know, um, it's something that's hard to learn on your own. Uh, but, 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 uh, different parts of mathematics have turned out to be very important, uh, as, as the field has evolved, you know, uh, back in the seventies and eighties, people were talking about, well, maybe we don't need to teach calculus to computer scientists anymore. Now, now everybody has to know about derivatives um, and everyone has to know about probabilities. And and uh, and it's very important to understand about convexity and convex optimization and so on. So um, uh, uh, particularly on more on the R&D side, you need that strong mathematical background. Um, So I would say maybe those are the three things, curiosity, uh, a bit of compulsiveness about the data, about uh, uh, methodology and then um, having a strong mathematical background.
0: Interesting. And um, what are some of your favorite reads, some of the books that, that you would like to recommend to our listeners and viewers?
1: Ooh, I didn't prepare the, a good answer for this one. Um, uh, well, I think uh, the, 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 the book that was most thought-provoking to me most recently is a book by Paul Charest called Army of None about autonomous weapons systems right cuz this is an area uh that i think a lot of us are very concerned about
2: mm. uh,
1: and uh and one of the things he points out in that book is uh um that generally um when people use an autonomous system uh they it, the autonomy is is has a has a uh a fence around it there's a certain mm. narrow mm. area where the system is allowed to act and outside of that area it's not allowed to act and mm. and uh A Key question is how do we specify that region Mm. of autonomy? Uh, How do we enforce it? Um, How do we test it things like this? the other thing I thought that was most important in in that book was uh, His emphasis on the importance of the human organization that surrounds any application of artificial intelligence
2: Mm.
1: you know as a technologist. I tend to focus on the technology and want to make the technology reliable but if we want the uh the the company or whatever the organization is to use that technology reliably mm. then the whole organization needs to be reliable and there was uh, a lot of research um after the three mile island uh nuclear uh quasi meltdown that occurred mm. um there uh an area of research uh came up known as the search uh research on highly reliable organizations or, mm. or high reliability um and the and they were the uh you know social scientists studied human organizations that are very reliable in their decision making like nuclear submarine crews for instance have have an amazing reliability record air traffic control surprisingly reliable even Mm -hmm. nuclear power plant management surprisingly reliable um and certain military groups some are more reliable some much less reliable um and so um uh, there are many characteristics of, of HROs high, high reliability organizations mm-hmm. is one, they pay attention to anomalies, uh, and treat those as a threat to their reliability. They, you mm-hmm. know, they don't say, well, those, that kind of thing just happens from time to time. No, they try to figure out why. Uh, another thing is that they push decision-making authority down to the person who has the knowledge. So, uh, the, the person who's really knowledgeable about the particular problem makes a decision, not the manager. Um, and so those are two examples. Of course, they have to do training and so on. So um, I mentioned all of this, I really recommend this book.
0: And, mm. I, and I
1: think there are a lot of lessons in there far beyond military systems to just any application of, mm. of AI technology. You wanna make sure you have processes and procedures and a human organization around that, that ensures that the, that the whole system is reliable. It's not enough mm. for the software to be reliable by itself or for the humans to be reliable by themselves but the combination needs to be reliable as well.
0: Interesting. Uh, thank you for, for sharing that. So now with the last question. So uh, as a closing remark, like what would you uh, like to suggest our listeners and viewers if they want to take away from something from this conversation, from this session, what would that one message be that you want our listeners and, and viewers to take away?
1: Well, I think it's very important to remember that uh, that software, including machine learning software, is all software. <laughs> that, mm.
2: So. Um,
1: really ai ai technologies are just another way of building software mm-hmm. so they have all the problems that software has that it's very hard to, to to build the right software system uh so you need to have agile methods where you can revise the system and uh and uh they're hard to test uh but, but so testing is very important right um and uh uh, and, and so all of the, the issues that come up in software, cyber, cybersecurity, privacy, all these things apply to AI software as well. Mm-hmm. In addition, AI software maybe, uh, introduces some new problems. So a big issue with machine learning is we don't know how to prove that the machine learning system is correct. Um, uh, you know, with traditional software, the programmer writes the main line of the code and really thinks about the general case. And where human programmers fall down is on the corner cases.
2: Mm. And we
1: uncover those by probing the system with test cases. Right. Right? I mean, we just train the system on test cases, and there's no general specification of what the system is supposed to do. There's nothing we can valid, uh, verify against. Um, and so, uh, so that's a unique challenge, I think, that machine learning systems pose that traditional systems uh, don't. So. Um, so, but but so, my main take home message would be: it's still software; it has all the problems of software, um, and then it has a few new ones as well.
0: Awesome. With that, uh, Tom, thank you again so much for um, your gracious time, helping us understand the depth of AI, what it is doing, what it could do, what to expect. Uh, I do appreciate your time with us. You're always welcome back on the podcast, and whenever you are in Boston, let me know. Uh, love to meet you. And um, share a beer or coffee or, or or lunch with you. So thank you so much.
1: Okay, well, it's been a pleasure talking with you,
2: Vishal. Uh.